1: To my successor, whoever he or she may be Number one, stay close to the Americans Stick up for the Ukrainians Stick up for freedom and democracy everywhere Politics in general has taken total legal expenses Changing one man at the top of the Tory party won't make any difference It won't fix the problems Let's have a fresh
2: start for Britain Let's have a real change of government
1: you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen
3: Carroll. Coming up on today's show, as the Conservative leadership race rattles towards a close, we'll speak to the CEO of Ipsos in the UK of Ireland, Kelly Beaver, about the key issues facing the next
1: Prime Minister. And big problem, small doses with very limited supplies of vaccine. The UK joins other countries in using smaller doses to limit the spread of monkeypox. We'll ask our Bloomberg specialist how worried we should, we should be about the virus and how prepared the country's health service is. Well, first to an economic headline that will be a major political story
3: tomorrow. Frankly, something that we all have an interest in. This is our energy bills. Tomorrow is the big off-gem decision on how high energy bills will go. I can't imagine there are many places in the country where people are not having the conversation about how much more they're going to have to pay for energy later in the year. The estimates are absolutely eye-watering. 80% rise. Potentially in household bills, that could be crucifying for some people.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a huge amount, and I, I wonder how much people are actually prepared for quite how much is this is a doubling from the current level. Remember, the bills went up a lot in April. We've been shielded by uh, the warm weather, so no one's got the heating on. But the bills are going to be uh, way more than double that what they were last winter. It's a huge jump in bills. I've been crunching the numbers actually, Stephen, about what this means in real terms. So we're probably looking at about fifty pence per kilowatt hour. It's only a couple of years ago that you could get electricity at 10 pence a kilowatt hour. Uh, A quick cycle on the washing machine, you're looking at about a pound, because the slight caveat that these things depend on your appliances obviously. Uh, Two hours using a tumble dryer, that could cost you two to three pounds. And sticking the Sunday roast in the oven for three hours, that is going to cost uh, more than three pounds uh, from October. So just turning on these appliances is going to be very, very expensive. And as ever, of course, it is the things which involve heating. Uh, which are the most expensive to use.
3: Yeah, and interesting that we're not getting yet that narrative from politicians about how people should be looking at energy use and reducing usage to try uh, and tackle this. Let's bring in our economics and government reporter, Lizzie Burden, who, of course, Lizzie, this is a huge story that you've been covering, both the anticipation of running up to tomorrow. Of course, you'll have all the details for us tomorrow as well. But politicians must be absolutely terrified about how bad this is going to be.
4: Yeah, and we're hearing lots of different ideas about how to deal with it, ideas that would have been unthinkable. uh, Only recently, you know, you've had the opposition leader Keir Starmer proposing to freeze prices and then subsidise suppliers for six months. That would cost about 29 billion pounds so the question is is that sustainable you know suppliers still have to pay market prices and then remember you had the former prime minister gordon brown saying that he nationalized the energy suppliers as they eventually went bust but again that'd be expensive it's basically an administrative distraction from what's the actual problem, which is that Russia's reducing energy flows. Uh, And then there's been also suggestions, another mad one, of uh, at least in some people's eyes, that there should be the OPEC of gas so that you could manipulate gas markets. Uh, The problem with that is you could probably get the EU on board, but maybe not the US, but you were talking about um, different ways that you could save on your energy bill. I mean, I'm a big fan of only putting in as much as you need for your cup of tea uh, in the kettle. But there are calls on the government to have teams going round telling people how to save on their energy bills. And Rishi Sunak didn't say that he would actively do that, but he did agree that it would make sense to, uh, to help people get smart on how to save a bit of money.
1: And Lizzie, just very briefly, how are other European countries dealing with this problem?
4: Well, uh, in, the, in France, they essentially have a similar energy price cap to what we have in the UK. The difference is that France has effectively nationalised EDF, its main supplier, or at least the government has a lot more influence over pricing there. Uh, and the, diff- the other difference is that the UK's energy use is, uh, well, we're much more reliant on gas for heating our homes than, say, Germany or the US, even though we've had this big push into renewables like wind and solar.
3: Okay, thanks very much, Lizzie, for that. Let's bring in Kelly Beaver, who's CEO of the polling company Ipsos in the UK and Ireland. Kelly, what does your latest polling tell us about public concern about the energy price issue?
5: So we've been tracking this kind of issue for over 50 years, and we've now got a 40-year high in public concern about inflation and cost of living. We haven't seen something like that since the 1980s. We've also seen a rise in concern about energy, climate change and some of those broader topics as well over the last month in particular. So the public are very concerned. And what they're seeing from politicians at the minute and certainly covered in the press and media are some of the key topics they're raising, like groupthink in the civil service and workers need more graft. And this morning, Rishi Sunak coming out with um, lockdowns caused quite a lot of damage and he was against them. But three and four in the public, they don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about what government are going to do once the new prime minister is installed to help people day to day with their cost of living concerns. And, of course, energy pricing being a big part of that.
1: Kelly, I was uh, just reading your um, release a little bit earlier. I see just over half of the public are worried about rising prices, which I was actually surprised it wasn't it wasn't more people. What, what's the trend there? Is the number of people concerned about inflation still increasing?
5: So, so that is people who identified as the single most important issue that, that say that 55% of them say it's the single most important issue, but that number is substantially higher when you look at people's pessimism about the economy for the next 12 months. It's as high as 8 and 10. People think things are going to be getting worse. And of course, we see a high volume of people making day-to-day changes in some of the trackers we do on how they do consumer spending um, and whether or not they feel that they're having to really make a, a difference in their household expenditure on things that are real necessities for them, like food.
3: So g- take us through the, the detail of that. What What tough decisions are people having to make already?
5: So when we started tracking this um, sort of consumer spending, kind of things that we were seeing at the beginning of this year were really people eating into savings where they had managed to make savings throughout the course of the pandemic. Those numbers are neither here nor there. Now the big ones are about uh, people impacting on their household shopping, moving to lower cost items, uh, to supermarket own brand items, and ultimately reducing costs of some of those, those things that are core essentials other areas which are more um, discretionary spend, like shopping, um, shopping for clothing and Nina's uh, out and those kind of things, again, we saw those drop quite early on. So, in the beginning of the summer period. So, people are now into making very difficult trade offs in their households. And it isn't just those in the lower income groups, we're seeing even those in some of the higher income groups. So, we, we consider that as sort of a household with £55,000 income uh, plus per, per annum making trade-offs as well on their own discretionary spend items.
1: Well, that's, that's very interesting. Now, clearly that is the key issue which has is been discussed by most people up and down the country, but uh, something we've been focused on uh, on this show is the Conservative leadership election, the next Prime Minister of the country. What's the polling you've got on people's views on uh, the, the, the two candidates to be Prime Minister?
5: So it probably uh, doesn't take me to remind people that, of course, this decision is going to be taken by a small group of the British public who happen to be Conservative Party members. And I'll just reflect a little bit on the membership polls before I come to the broader public, if that's OK. In the membership polls, it's been quite quite clear throughout that Liz Truss has been leading on those And so we've been looking at those, but also the broader public and what what their reflections are. And we've been asking a number of questions who they think would do a better job of winning a next election, but also who they think would make a good prime minister. And at the beginning, we saw Rishi Sunak's just level of public awareness when this campaign started. His level of awareness was much higher than Liz Truss's. But we've seen her people's awareness of her rise over the course of the last few weeks. And that has impacted on how the public view her and how they view the trade-offs between uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak themselves. We have similar amounts now who say that Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak would help win any uh, future general election. It is low, though, with around one in four saying that either candidate would, would give it a good chance and then also on who would make a good or bad PM. Again, they're very similar, sort of three and 10-ish, who say they would make a good prime minister. The key difference though, is the direction of travel for each candidate. And we've seen Liz Truss's scores with the general public improve over the leadership campaign. And we've seen Rishi Sunak's, the gap between him and her close. But of course, it will not be down to the British public. It will be down to those membership, um, membership votes.
3: Mm, as, as a matter of interest, how does Boris Johnson figures compare?
5: So it's very different amongst the general public comparatively to the conservative members so you'll have seen perhaps some polls where conservative members say they would rather have boris johnson than either of the candidates but amongst the general public that is quite different and again uh the trust issue for Boris Johnson continues to, to really stand the test of time. Only uh, one in five say that they would, they, they think that he tells the truth on a general basis. And either candidate, and Keir Stammer, the leader of the opposition, uh, comes out better than Boris on things like trust, which is important for a Prime Minister in terms of the characteristics that matter to the British public.
1: Have Has Keir Stammer and Labour made any impression on the issue of, uh, of energy bills and, and the cost of living. Obviously, they've been making announcements on that. Has that really filtered through to the, the, the popular imagination?
5: Well, so Labour generally come out stronger when you ask the public about who would you trust to deliver effectively on the challenges around cost of living, but also public services. And so we've been looking at um, how Keir Stammer, how public perceive uh, government under Keir Stammer, delivering against 13 key priorities comparatively to either Liz Truss or uh, Rishi Sunag. And Keir Stammer and a, a Labour government comes out top on 12 of the 13 issues. It's everything from levelling up to, you know, trust and delivering public services. It's a really wide range list of indicators that we test this on. The mm. only areas where Rishi Sunak does better, the only single area is on the economy and for Liz Truss, the best her the one that she does better is on a reduction in taxation so ultimately yes under Keir Stammer people do perceive that better better action would be taken on cost of living so that there is okay. some um, impact there but to be honest they would o- Labour have always done better on that historically.
3: Okay Kelly Beaver CEO of Ipsos in the UK and Ireland thank you very much for joining us
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th
1: In August, the US declared monkeypox a national health emergency and not long after that, the WHO also declared it an international public health emergency. And with only one manufacturer producing a vaccine and over 40,000 cases globally, according to the US CDC, the sense of urgency shows no signs of abating.
3: To cope with limited vaccine supply, the European Union and United States are immunising with only a fractional dose. The UK is piloting plans to follow suit. That's despite speculation over the effectiveness of this treatment plan. Well, joining us now is Sam Fizelli, Senior Pharmaceuticals Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and Director of Research for EMEA, and our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. Uh, Thank you to you both for being with us. Sam, to you first, the... The comparison, of course, when we start talking about a widespread outbreak of a virus, we think about COVID, this is a very different situation.
2: Oh, absolutely. When you look at the, um, and you can find this on various data providers online, the trajectory of cases with monkeypox versus the trajectory of cases with COVID-19 back in the day, you know, going back to March 2020, very different. And in both cases, I think there's probably quite significant Undercounting, because of perhaps some stigma especially with monkeypox and also the lack of coordinated testing etc so even if it's three times l- fewer than than uh, showing three times lower than it should be it's miles different and that's all to do with the
1: way that is transmitted Therese talk to us about the uh, difficulties of, of rolling out some sort of vaccine program of course we should have good experience of doing this having rolled out an enormous vaccine program very recently, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it?
6: Yeah, it's actually been quite tricky. Um, I mean, we the the good news was that we have a vaccine. Um, Monkeypox is an orthopox virus. so It's similar to smallpox. We actually already had two vaccines. Um, The one of them that was uh, a a treatment vaccine for smallpox actually has quite serious side effects. But we have this vaccine from Bavaria Nordic. Um, The problem is that by the time, uh, you know, there's been a rush to, particularly by wealthy countries, to to get doses, and some have been more successful than others. So, for example, the U.S. had no doses at the start of the outbreak. Um, The Biden administration has now taken delivery of well over a million doses. I think there's another 150,000 50,000 to arrive in September, yet another 150,000 due by the end of the year, so that should bring supply to about 1.4 million, and and, uh, there's a a contract for an additional uh, 5 million doses. So the U.S. is in pretty good shape. The European Union has been sort of the surprise here, because the Commission had set up this authority called the Health Emergency Preparedness and Response Authority, Hera, to do exactly this, to basically... Uh, secure doses that would work for an, a block of 450 million. After the pandemic, we saw a lot of vaccine nationalism and uh, you know, recriminations as countries struggle to get doses, but it hasn't been that successful. And, you know, the commission has ended up ordering just over 160,000 doses for the block, whereas France, which had stockpiled uh, the, uh, the Bavarian Nordic uh, vaccine for smallpox, you know, had ordered well over 250,000. Some other countries had very, you know, had orders in place. And so you had this uh, situation where, you know, particularly those who are most vulnerable uh, uh, to to getting monkeypox, and men who have sex with other men, in say Portugal traveling to France to get the vaccine and so it's not really been a great uh, you know great outcome for the European Commission which is kind of scrambling uh, to get more doses in play.
3: Mm -hmm. Sam given that context of of the the difficulty of getting vaccines to places how important is it to know about who's most vulnerable to catching monkeypox and then the need for vaccines from a broader point of view?
2: Yeah I mean if you think about it this is a disease that doesn't transmit as easily therefore and it's um, in most cases easy to relatively easy to diagnose because of its features and now um, unfortunately for some reason um, it seems that some people don't go through the fever and general malaise that comes with the uh, so-called the prodrome before the actual lesions occur but So that makes it a bit more difficult to to say, okay, now I need the vaccine. But you can vaccinate around this. Now we're still dealing with a vaccine that's relatively confined to a specific population. Therefore, if you move fast enough, you should be able to vaccinate around this ring vaccination and contain it. I just wish, I just wish we had done much better in vaccinating where this virus was already endemic in Africa. That would have solved the problem with far less
1: worry um, for people. Trose, I want to ask you about the public health messaging on this, because this is it's quite tricky, isn't it? Because this is a, a virus which so far mostly affects men who have sex uh, with men. Uh, and also because we have limited vaccines, we don't want to cause huge concern amongst 65 million people, because they can't all have a vaccine, can they, for, for some time. So how do how do we fine-tune that
6: yeah that's exactly the the tricky part of it and we know it's a it's a difficult issue for public messaging in part because uh the world health organization's emergency committee was very divided on whether to declare it a public health emergency of international concern which they ultimately did with the uh you know head of the of the w uh, HO, uh, Dr. Tedros basically casting the deciding vote, and I think that was the right thing. They needed to raise the risk profile. Um, one question that is, you know, I think, you know, troubled a lot of people is whether to sort of label it or, or uh, talk about it in the same terms as we do other sexually uh, transmitted diseases, and, and it, it is different from uh, other STIs because, you know, the, the actual a uh, period of uh, infectiousness maybe you know is is short as two to four weeks, whereas when we think of uh, you know HIV or other STDs, you are you know you continue to be um, able to transmit that um, you know a, a, over a, a long period of time. Um, but as you say, you know if you raise the concern to a level where you know people are rushing to get this vaccine prophylactically, then we have run into a supply problem. So you know back to the supply question, Bavarian Nordic says it has a capacity to produce 30 to 40 million doses annually there's some question about whether it can and 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 how how it you know how quickly it can get those doses up a two dose regime would be enough to cover say 15 to 20 million people so that you know we, we, there they will need to be some prioritization of who receives the vaccine, and that comes back to the messaging. And maybe, you know, we can also talk about sort of how that vaccine is delivered, because now health authorities are looking at cutting the dose by a fifth and delivering it into the skin to improve um, uh, protection.
3: Yeah, Sam, can you talk us through that, this pro, pro this idea of stretching out the doses by, by essentially using less of it? How does that work?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really uh, pretty... Um, uh, historically been done for uh, smallpox in that you introduce the, the vaccine into the skin, which the human, uh, well, in most animals, your barrier tissues, your skin, your gut, are packed full of cells that are surveying for pathogens which is their job right to keep you to keep you alive so the reaction in fact the immune reaction to something going into your skin as opposed to under your skin is likely to be even better which is i think some of the data that we've seen and now of course the uk is doing a trial to also get some um, field data for this um, and and i think we'll see more of it so i think it's a, a great
1: idea as long as the practitioners are well trained to do it Why do we not do that anyway? It sounds sounds like it works very well.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you go for injections these days, the majority of injections are either into your muscle or subcutaneous or into your stomach, but one of those two. So it's a little bit more complicated trying to deliver it into the skin. And that's where I think they need to just perhaps have a little bit of training. But you're right. The other thing is you you, sh- you need the studies to prove that you you are definitely doing what theory says should happen, i.e., inducing a pretty powerful immune response in the skin. But I'm convinced that that would be the case. Therese, you've written a lot about the
3: the NHS in in recent recent weeks as well as uh, as well as previously, and I'm wondering how well able the NHS is to roll out a vaccine, even supply being the biggest issue that we're talking about. We're also hearing this talk of how e- much easier it is to get a vaccine in London, comparatively speaking, than elsewhere in the UK. How is the health service coping with the rollout element of it?
6: I think the advantage of the NHS compared to, say, um, you know, health systems in the US and many other countries, is there's a they're digitised health record. So they it's quite easy to access um, even through an app these days but as you know the GP has your records so that really facilitates um, rollouts of things like vaccines and we saw that during COVID so you know that's the positive. On the negative side you know where to start um, this is a, a health system that is running hot in the summer we're used to it kind of being stretched the limit in the winter, but um, the, uh, you know, news of, you know, everything from delayed, uh, you know, ambulances to uh, cancer treatments uh, being delayed and diagnoses being delayed uh, to massive workforce shortages and nurses and doctors, um, it just goes on and on. So, you know, clearly if there was a significant rise in cases that needed hospitalization, which is usually to for pain management reasons um mm. more than anything else uh, you know it would just add to the pressures on an already overstretched health service but i think when it comes to uh vaccinations as long as the supply is there the nhs has definitely the distribution mechanisms um i i don't know whether we are Really doing enough in terms of the treatment, um, uh, you know, get, getting the supplies of uh, tecoviramat the the um, uh, the treatment out, and I think that's that's another thing that the NHS will need to to look at to try to get on top of this before it spreads further.
1: Mm, another problem for the NHS to face up to this winter. Therese, thanks so much for joining us. That's Therese Raphael, our Bloomberg opinion columnist, and Sam Fazelli, senior pharmaceuticals analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.